Welcome to the 15th episode of the 1796 Podcast, a monthly podcast that features exclusive interviews and in-depth news about the Tennessee National Guard and the Tennessee Military Department. The 1796 Podcast is produced every month by the Airmen and Soldiers of the Tennessee National Guard Joint Public Affairs Office. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Malone. And I'm Captain Hall, your co-hosts of the 1796 Podcast. This month, Colonel Andy Jordan and Command Sergeant Major Chad Stackpole, the Garrison Command Team from Fort Campbell, Kentucky, join in the podcast. Fort Campbell and the men and women that serve there are integral to our nation's defense. Colonel Jordan and Sergeant Major Stackpole will tell us all about it. And of course, we'll brief you on the latest news impacting the Tennessee National Guard in our Tennessee Bluff news segment. First up, Lieutenant Colonel Malone sits down with Colonel Andy Jordan and Command Sergeant Major Chad Stackpole. All right, listeners of the 1796 podcast, we are thrilled to be joined today by Colonel Andy Jordan, the Garrison Commander, and Command Sergeant Major Chad Stackpole, the Garrison Command Sergeant Major, both from Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Gentlemen, welcome to the 1796 podcast. Thank you. Welcome to Fort Campbell. Man, we're thrilled to have you. Thank you, sir. All right. I'm going to start with an easy one here. If you look at the map, if you go to Google Maps or whatever, and if you look at a map at Fort Campbell, the Army Post is in Tennessee and some is in Kentucky, but most of it looks like it's in Tennessee. So as a Tennessean, I have to ask, why do we always hear Fort Campbell, Kentucky? Okay, well, hey, I'll take the first one right off the bat. Thank you, Colonel. It's really, uh, it's pretty easy. It's where the uh, United States Post Office is. Yeah. So the, uh, the Post Office is on the Kentucky side of the state line. About... I would say almost 80% of our landmass is actually on the Tennessee state side of the state line. We take up four counties. We take up part, portions of Stewart and Montgomery County on the Tennessee side and portions of Trigg and Christian County on the, on the Kentucky side. But truly, it's the, uh, the, the, the United States Post Office. So whenever you punch in 42223, you're going to get Fort Campbell, Kentucky. It's interesting. If you look at my headquarters from my office in the headquarters building, you can literally see the, uh, the post office. You can see, see the state line. I try to explain to everybody who's in my office. I, I point over there and I say, you know what? My kids could hit a baseball from here to Kentucky. Um, I couldn't quite do it, but uh, it's about 400, 400-ish feet uh, from my window to, uh, to Kentucky, and the post office sits probably less than 100 feet across the state line into Kentucky. So uh, that, that truly is why it, why it, uh, why it was. A, another you know, small fact, though, is the reason we were Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and the post office over there led to us actually being named after a son of Tennessee. Right. William Bowen Campbell. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of a compromise there between the states and the War Department back in 42, and they said, we're going to be Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And Tennessee said, okay, well, you can name it after uh, after one of right. our, our folks. So that that's how it came to be. In fact, as I was driving on post today, I came in from the northern route. So I was coming in on the Kentucky side, but when I came on post, my navigation <laughs> said, welcome to Tennessee. All right, that, that was perfect. And you kind of t- may have taken away my next question. I was going to ask, are there any cool history facts or anything we need to know about Fort Campbell. You know, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of pick up that one. No, yeah, you, please. You, you, yeah, the, something you mentioned earlier that most people don't factor. So when I was being told I was coming here to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, did and I'd been stationed here before and understand how much land mass mm-hmm. was actually mm-hmm. on the Tennessee side. They're like, you have a unique base in which you're going to because you have two states and you have four counties. Mm-hmm. So when you look at that, most people don't factor that in regards to the relationships they have within the community. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of outreach here. And when you have that 
many people here in the surrounding area between Nashville and 24 up to Clarksville, mm -hmm. how many small towns have kind of built up and enlarged. We've really expanded our, our living quarters out across all the way down to Nashville. So mm -hmm. you, you look at how many people we retain in this area is because of that. Like it, it's just a good home setting. And we're up to what, 43% now, sir, of our retirees that choose to stay, stay. right here in this immediate yeah. area. So I, I find that interesting that, you know, while it is two states that we're here, it's one really one big community mm -hmm. when you look at it at large. And it's, it makes people want to stay here because of how comfortable they are. Uh, one of the additional things that, you know, I've, I've been able to learn while coming on board is that following World War II, Fort Campbell actually housed three German prisoner of war camps here on the installation for about a thousand prisoners of each of those three camps. So there are many folks that don't know about it. And some of the stuff that I was able to kind of learn as I came on board with some of the, uh, the uh, landmass that we have, I just found that that was very interesting that we brought them here, you know, nowhere as near the coast of how they would have come in on mm -hmm, ship, mm -hmm. but then would have brought them in by train to turn around and get them here yep. into the, you know, the heartland of America and the South. That's awesome. In fact, if people want to listen to the previous episode, we talk a little bit about War II history. There's lots in Tennessee across the whole state. That's awesome. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Appreciate it. All right, Colonel Jordan, one for you. You actually started in the Oklahoma National Guard. What did you do there? And why on earth did you ever get out of the Guard? Why did you end up active duty? And tell us a little bit about your story, how you came to be where you are now. Okay, well, so th it is an interesting story. I've actually served in all three compos. Right. Uh, and uh, I actually first enlisted in the U.S. Army Reserve okay. uh, in a unit in Oklahoma City uh, as, a, as a medic. I thought I wanted to go to medical school whenever I was a freshman in college, like a lot of uh, freshmen in college. And and I started taking science classes and realized my brain was wired a different way, so I switched to the business school. So uh, in the in the meantime, I was already in ROTC. I had uh, I had started taking ROTC, and uh, had decided, you know what, if I'm going to join the army, I'm going to go into the infantry. So the opportunity arose for me to uh, for me to transfer over to the 45th Infantry Division. So I'm a Thunderbird soldier. Mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, I was a simultaneous member cadet. While I was in ROTC, mm -hmm. so I got to serve as a scout platoon leader in uh, in the Oklahoma Army National Guard uh, while I was at Oklahoma State University, which was was awesome. I mean, it was a great experience, uh, very historic unit um, that uh, that I I have a patch from that I that I was able to uh, that I was able to wear. Uh, so so that was a, a really a great honor, and to be able to say that you've served in all three compos is a pretty neat. Uh, needy experience. Uh, but, you know, I decided after I graduated from college that, that I wanted to make the Army my career, at least for the first three years. Um, I think like a lot of, lot of individuals that come in, nobody 100% realizes or believes that 25 years later they'll, they'll mm -hmm. still be sitting in the seat and wearing yeah. the uniform. Uh, so after I graduated from Oklahoma State, I, I decided, you know what, I'll go on active duty and, and try this for a few years, and, and it stuck. My yeah. wife and I are here still 25 years later gotcha. and, uh, and enjoying serving in the, uh, in the United States Army. Awesome. Sergeant Major Stackpole, got the same question. Uh, tell us a little bit about your career, how you ended up where you are now. So uh, I joined the Army right out up the road from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So graduated from high school there, knew at that point that I wasn't going to go to college and joined with about nine of my friends. It was before Kosovo kicked off, so it wasn't really a war-driven effort. It was more of a, we need college money. Mm -hmm. I was the oldest of four. I had no intentions of going to school, but I kept telling them, I'll go with you and get some college money. I started out as a young paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne mm -hmm. Division. 
and was groomed by some of the finest NCOs I've ever served with in my entire career. One of them convinced me that I should probably re-enlist and consider. He knew I wanted to marry my high school sweetheart, mm -hmm. and I actually re-enlisted and came here to Fort Campbell. I spent seven years here at the height of the war, um, never wanted to leave, but eventually I had to go be a ranger instructor. Right. Uh, I, had to, I had to go out and get some, uh, some trade-off time and mm -hmm. broaden my career a little bit. So yeah, that was uh, kind of really what got me going on my path. And then at that point, I started re-enlisting. I was like, you know what? I kind of like this. I, I don't want to get out. This is, this is kind of the thing that I want to do. I, I don't want to get out and go to school. I've, got, I've, already, I've already started a family. I kind of like where we're going as a country. I uh, felt really patriotic and very proud to serve, so re-enlisted again. I, I know I could see this in the questions leading into this. Uh, while I was in Fort Benning, I won the best ranger competition. Right. And one of the perks of that is I got to go with our regimental command team and go up and, and watch the changing of the guard of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Mm -hmm. And as we were getting paraded around the AUSA convention, yeah, everyone asking us, where do you want to go? What jobs do you want to do? And I looked at him, I was like, well, be honest with you, I, I'd like to be a tomb guard. I've mm -hmm. never seen this, but I think it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of got a funny side eye look like, are you serious? That's what you want to do? Right. Well, I ended up getting injured and, and breaking my back and, you know, had a couple of areas that I needed to have some surgery done mm -hmm. on. It just kind of fell in place. The regimental sergeant major for the old guard happened to be standing there. I mm -hmm. uh, was really good buddies with my uh, regimental CSM at the time, and he, he took my social down, and within four hours I was on assignment. Right. And so I ended up going up to the old guard, did a year there on the presidential firing party platoon, and then got selected by my first sergeant to go over, and who was a prior tomb guard mm -hmm. and grew up in the 75th Ranger Regiment after that. And the rest was history, kind of like that was the kind of the, the bug that got me going. Very cool. Yeah, we will come back to that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Colonel Jordan, one for you. So um, you went to Air Force Air Command and Staff College. Tell us what was that like? What was Maxwell like? Why did you choose the air side versus the Army side? Well, to be quite honest with you, it was a geography question. Sure. So uh, I, I first came to Fort Campbell uh, in 2004. I was assigned to the 5th Special Forces Group uh, straight out of the Special Forces Qualification Course, and, and the war was, was really at its height at that point. Uh, and... In the uh, in the meantime, my my parents actually moved from Oklahoma to Clarksville, Tennessee, because I had the only grandchildren at the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, we knew that my wife was going to go to graduate school, and I was going to go back and forth to Iraq. So Grandma and Grandpa said, "Hey, we'll come out and uh, and yeah. be close to the to the yeah. grandkids." So uh, we kind of settled our family in this area. Uh, and when the opportunity arose for me to know that, hey, I can I can go get my my ILE credit mm -hmm. and and go four hours down the road to Montgomery yeah. to Maxwell and oh yeah by the way the Air Force was providing a master's degree mm -hmm. program right. uh, at the time and and at that time if you went to Fort Leavenworth you had to go to night school to get your master's right. so I said you know what I'm going to go try the uh, try the Air Force yeah. go hang out with them for a bit and uh, and be four hours down the road and come straight back to to Fifth Special Forces group so that's what happened we we very much enjoyed our time at Maxwell uh, Montgomery's a great city uh, my wife is from from Mississippi, so it was, it was a little bit closer to home sure. for her at the time, and, uh, and it, was, it was really a good experience. Um, it was a good joint flavor down there. We had, uh, you know, my seminar had had members from all all branches mm -hmm. and, and all compos. My, my kids went to school right there on Maxwell Air Force Base, so I, I walked my kids to school every day, and I, I picked them up most days as well, so it was, it was a really good experience, and I'm really, really thankful that I was able to do that. Fast forward, Two times in my career later, I've been stationed on Air Force Base mm -hmm. on an Air Force Base. I've I've done two two tours at, at Maxwell or mm -hmm. McDill Air Force mm -hmm. Base down mm -hmm. in Tampa. So 
really uh, really enjoy that. And you know, you I see your U.S. Air Force name tape. You sure. guys always have the the nicest mm-hmm. golf course too. You know, absolutely. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The one here is pretty nice. I stayed right next to it. With a friend Cole Park is a nice one yeah. for those that are that are looking for a championship golf course right. in Clarksville, Tennessee. There you go. I'll do my shameless plug for MWR <laughs> no, and come absolutely. come play Cole, Cole Park. <laughs> All right, that's awesome. All right, Sergeant Major Sackpole, you took us through your career. You mentioned first place in the Ranger competition. I know you also got second place once. We may we ask you about that too. Um, and, and you mentioned Tomb of the Unknown. So what what kind of discipline, what, what kind of training does it take to do two totally different things like that? What's your perspective on that? I think ultimately for, for me and what I always tell, I'll, I'll focus on best Ranger at first. Sure. Everyone always thinks you're you're in a competition to go out and compete against others. Um, and ultimately for me, my first year ever being exposed to Best Ranger, I watched Sergeant Major Doug Greenway, a Ranger legend, compete with his son, Brennan Greenway, uh, in 2007. And I sat there and I was like, I am a staff sergeant sitting here giving kill, no kill commands mm-hmm. on a grenade assault course. And I'm watching a 30-year veteran Sergeant Major go through this. And I, I looked at my buddies, I was like, I will never run this event again. I will compete mm-hmm. as long as I'm here. And so the, the, very, the very next day, my, my buddy and I, who had competed, um, he, he ended up finishing 16th, and he had, the, he had that itch. Mm-hmm. He's like, I think we should start training together. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we spent all our time training and, and getting ready for that next competition. And one of the things he always told me as we were going through it is, you know, it's, there's the rabbit in the race, but then there's your own race. Mm-hmm. And he goes, if you don't focus on your own race and you focus on others around you, you're going to lose sight of, of the, the goal. So I always share with them one of the things that helped me out is like you're competing against your own abilities. So don't expect what you don't inspect and don't expect results for something you haven't prepared for. Mm -hmm. So it really came down to the attention to detail and the finer arts of it. Everybody's going to be a physical specimen and they're going to look like, you know, Leonidas chiseled out of stone when they pull their right. shirt off out there at the competition, right. right? But it was really the ones that were mentally strong that could dial yeah. in and focus. Right. That piece there, taking that to the tomb and learning how to break down the knowledge to where it just didn't become rote memorization, but you actually knew why things were in place and the history that led into the unknowns, and you understood about Arlington National Cemetery and the historical figures that were there and how you had to share the Army story with the American public and Mm -hmm. the world who came Mm -hmm. to visit to get them to understand and truly respect the the grit of the American soldier. That piece for me, breaking down the uniforms, understanding the knowledge and the intricacies and how technical it was to do that walk, to inspect the rifle, inspect the the service Mm -hmm. member who was going to, or the guard who Mm -hmm. was going onto the mat, um, and handing over that responsibility. Like that carried over from Best Ranger in, into being a tomb guard. And I was able to share my experience because obviously you're the new guy. I went in as a sergeant first class to be mm-hmm. a guard. Mm-hmm. And I became the sergeant of the guard at the end of my nine-month training. Right. So there is no freebie because of your rank. Like right. you still go through the in-depth level of training. But I was able to share from my experience and got immediate buy-in with the team by going through every aspect of that uh, with the soldiers. So... Um, by sharing my stories from, from my time at Best Ranger, it really helped build upon the team, and it kind of gave them a new appreciation mm-hmm. for what they were doing as opposed to they were just out here guarding. That's great. Really, really built a sense of ownership. Yeah. So you, f- you finished second and first at, I, in Best Ranger. Did you learn anything from finishing second? Oh, sir, that's uh, the most humbling because yeah. – 
for me that year, the entire front row at the end of the third day, and obviously the fourth morning is the award ceremony, mm-hmm. the official award ceremony. My partner was an absolute physical specimen. You know, Staff Sergeant Carlos Chevy Mercado, and he had done well the year before. I was actually deployed forward in Afghanistan and was on the same compound as the young officer who had won it that that year and we were joking he's like yes yeah, our major i'm training for best ranger and i was like sir I'm, I'm too old for that so i ended up competing eight years after the fact and when i showed up and redeployed my division leadership looked at me and said hey we could use your experience and i was yeah. like okay yeah, i'll coach and they're like oh no you're competing yeah. and i was like oh sounds good to me right <laughs> right yeah you know, not that i really wanted to do it at sure. 37 years of age sure. but i kind of i got out and assessed with a team and, and felt okay i could kind of hang with these guys now Chevy like mm-hmm. was just on another level and I was just kind of riding his coattails. Right. But what I learned from that experience sitting back and being a previous winner is everybody on the front row had already won it before or had just won it that year. Yeah. And I was able to tell my partner, we had one bad event that was a weighted 10 event and we came in dead last on it mm-hmm. and it took us out of the running. Yeah. But I told him, I was like, buddy, you're on the front line with winners. Yeah. And it, at the end of the day, you know, I learned more from watching and, and walking you through this process and teaching you what you had to get to, to gain in the future by coming in this. Um, it was very humbling for me, but it was also rewarding to watch my buddy, Master Sergeant Joshua Horsager, win that competition and to see that young officer, Captain Rose, win it for the second time. He's the only, only officer to come, only person to ever compete three times and win it three times. Oh, wow. So I feel like I'm in good company coming in second, and I'll gladly step to the side to see someone like that do that, perform at that level, um, as well as seeing a good Ranger buddy win the competition for the first time. That's great perspective. Thank you for that so much. So, All right, before we move on to some other topics, if you gentlemen are good, we will send it over to Captain Hall for our news segment. Captain Hall? Up first this month in the Tennessee Bluff, the Tennessee National Guard once again hosted Merritt Badge University a unique partnership between the Tennessee National Guard and the Scouts. With more than 300 Scouts in attendance, soldiers, airmen, and volunteers with the Tennessee Emergency Management Agency offered 22 specialized merit badge classes for Scouts to earn. Scouts from the Middle Tennessee Council and across the state were invited to attend. After the day-long event was over, more than 300 merit badges were earned by Scouts from across the state. And in national news, the Army is instituting a nationwide safety stand-down for all UH-60 Blackhawk helicopters. The mandatory safety training comes after several training incidents led to fatalities at multiple bases across the country. Nationwide, the Army Guard flies 948 Blackhawks, which is roughly 40% of the Army's fleet. The safety training will include topics like flight planning, risk assessment, and safe multi-ship operations. That's our Tennessee Bluff for this month. Now back to Colonel Malone. Thank you, Captain Hall. I'm gonna shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about Fort Campbell proper and the units that are here. So for those of us that don't know, we hear Fort Campbell, sometimes that's synonymous with 101st Airborne and some people may not know the difference. So what all units are here? What, what's y'all's responsibilities and, and, and what's the interrelationship and how does all that work together here at Fort Campbell? Okay, so Fort Campbell really is synonymous with the 101st Airborne Division, mm-hmm. but we also have uh, have several other very historic organizations that uh, that have done a lot, especially when you look at what 
what our nation has asked of our soldiers and this installation in the last 20 years or, or more. You know, I, whenever I'm out in the community, I talk about when the phone rang on 9-11, the morning of, of 9-11, 2001, it truly did ring here at Fort Campbell. Um, you have 5th Special Forces Group here. You have the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. And within weeks of, of 9-11, those two organizations already had soldiers in uh, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the first conventional organization to leave here was 3rd Brigade Combat Team, the Rakasans of the 101st Airborne Division. So when, when the phone rang on 9-11, it, it truly was answered here at Fort Campbell. I think this installation had probably in my opinion, if not the largest role initially in the global war on terror, it, it was very close to the top of that between 5th Group 160th and, and then the 101st. But we also have other organizations. We have the 52nd EOD Group, which is headquartered here, and they have uh, explosive ordnance disposal responsibilities over a very large geographic area, not just on Fort Campbell. Uh, we have the 531st Hospital Center. Uh, interesting about that, you want to talk front line, in the spring of 2020, when COVID first hit, the 531st, within 48 hours of notification, had sent soldiers from Fort Campbell to the Javits Center in New York and undoubtedly mm-hmm. saved the lives of our, our fellow Americans uh, when we were fighting an enemy that we could not see. You know, we, d- we did not know what COVID held for us in March of 2020, but soldiers from Fort Campbell got on an airplane and deployed to New York to save their fellow countrymen. So, mm-hmm. so that was, was great. We have, we have a dental activity here. We have uh, the 502nd Military Police Battalion, uh, which is a, a criminal investigative uh, battalion, CID. We have an NCO Academy, which is, is really uh, critical to grooming, growing, and producing that next generation of non-commissioned officer leaders uh, here, right here at Fort Campbell. And we also have a, a responsibility where soldiers come from Army, other Army installations mm-hmm. to, to go to the NCO Academy. We've got a field hospital. We've got Blanchfield Army Community Hospital, which takes care of not only our active duty service members, but our Army families and our retirees as well. Uh, and, and I'll then, add our, our Air Guard, Army Guard, AGRs. Yes, they come absolutely. Well. They come to, they come to Blanchfield. No, yeah. no, you're right. So we, we truly do have a, a, a joint flavor here. Uh, we have uh, Air Force units. We have the 19th Air Support Operations Squadron, uh, which works down at Campbell Army Airfield. We've also got the, the Detachment 4 Weather Squadron, uh, which provides weather updates for, uh, for our the 101st Airborne Division. They also are critical to weather events here here at Fort Campbell. And uh, there again, the Tennessee Army National Guard has got a component here. But funny, mm-hmm. you, you say that, the Tennessee Army National Guard's motor pool on Fort Campbell is actually on the Kentucky side of the state line. <laughs> so I don't know if you get taxed for that or not. I don't know. Uh, but uh, let's, but let's not talk anymore about a, that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so no, that's that's a little bit of the flavor that we have here at Fort Campbell. Um, but I really do like to, to talk about the history of, of those units. You talked 101st Airborne Division. I'm not certain that there is that there is not a more recognizable patch. When you Mm -hmm. look at Army insignia uh, across the globe, you see the 101st Airborne Division patch, and that is just synonymous with America, and uh, and it's highly recognizable regardless of where you're at. So Fort Campbell has a lot of history, uh, a lot of historic units, and we're very glad that they call Fort Campbell home. That is the Screaming Eagle patch for our listeners, and I drove in on Screaming Eagle Boulevard Boulevard. today. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you, sir. So y'all do garrison command. How does that fit in with everything? What do y'all do? What do y'all take care of? The unicorn, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, what's interesting is is the garrison is the installation itself. Right. 
we have about 2,000 civilian employees that make up the garrison uh, department of the Army civilians. There's very, very few soldiers that are assigned to the garrison. Command Sergeant Major, myself, um, some of our installation chaplains mm -hmm. in our religious service uh, office, and then a, a, a headquarters company. And that's really the, the, the majority of, mm -hmm. of the green suit soldiers that are assigned to the U.S. Army garrison. So you have you have an installation that is mm -hmm. is run by Installation Management Command with the uh, the garrison as its kind of operational arm of that. I always like to talk about why the garrison exists and why our 2,000 Department of the Army civilians come to work every day, and and that truly is to provide every resource and every opportunity so that our warfighters that I just went through the list mm -hmm. prior to that those warfighters have every opportunity and resource to train to their wartime mission and go forward and, and yeah. you know, fight and win our nation's wars. Right. So that's why the garrison exists. The other reason they exist is to take care of our, our families that we leave behind. Having been a, a veteran of Fort Campbell and, and been here on, on numerous occasions prior to assigned to the 5th Special Forces Group, I know firsthand what it's like to, to leave my family um, at Fort Campbell and know that someone is going to take yeah. care of them while I'm forward deployed. So I talk to our, our team all the time about making sure that in the days of instant message that a soldier who's getting ready to go into harm's way and getting ready to leave their the safety of their FOB or wherever they may be and go out on a 12-hour on a patrol, that they don't get that instant message that it's January and my hot water heater broke or, you know, it's July and the air conditioner's broken if they get that message from their spouse back here at Fort Campbell, their mind is not going to be focused yeah. on the enemy to their front and their battle buddy to their right yeah. and left. Their mind is going to be focused mm -hmm. on their family back here. Right. Our job as the garrison is to make sure that those phone calls and messages are mitigated, that we're not going to bat a thousand. Nobody sure. can. But our families need to know that if they have those challenges and issues, that it's going to be taken care of by a, by a Department of the Army professional as quickly and as efficiently as possible so that that soldier in, forward in harm's way can focus on the enemy to their front and their battle buddy to their right and left. And I do that under the direction of the senior mission commander. The senior mission commander at Fort Campbell is Major General J.P. McGee. He has two hats. He's the senior mission commander of Fort Campbell, mm -hmm. and he's also the commanding general of the 101st Airborne mm -hmm. Division. So under his senior mission commander hat, that's where Command Sergeant Major Stackpole and I get our authority yeah. as the garrison commander and, and command sergeant major, and we answer to him and we execute his senior mission commander guidance uh, for right. the installation so that he can then focus as well on his other, other role as the commanding general of the 101st Airborne Division. Oh, so important. Yes, thank you for that. Anything to add, Sergeant Major? I'd like to add on it for in regards to the green suitor side, we're here to bridge the gap. Mm -hmm. You know, there's vice versa. There are our Department of the Army Civilian Corps who are subject matter experts in their field, and they may not understand why the tenant units are requesting things or need certain things. Um, and we're here to kind of bridge that gap vice versa between mm -hmm. the tenant units and the Department of the Army civilians mm -hmm. and our veterans. Sure. Um, so we spend a, a lot of our time learning from our experts who are doing things because of the constrictions and restrictions that they have in place, and then going down to the unit user level to share with them why things are the way they are. Uh, ultimately, we're here at the end of the day on behalf of the senior commander to make sure that we're providing world-class services yep. to all of our soldiers, their families, our civilians, and our veterans. So. I think that's the, the most unique thing that I've learned coming in this because there's nothing that prepares you for garrison command. 
You know, the, the commander, like he says all the time, he can move into a third world country and turn around and establish operations and, and, and set them up for success in, in defending themselves and, and running a country. You know, I could, I could turn around and t tell you anything about light fighter operations from an infantry standpoint from riflemen all the way up to command sergeant major. But there's nothing that teaches you for garrison command. So we learn a lot from our civilian corps of things that, like, I wish I would have known this when I mm -hmm. was a first sergeant yeah. and I had these complaints about barracks. Now I understand why or I'm getting a better appreciation for why things are the way they are. And so MCOM does a good job when they're onboarding us to let, let us know, like, you are not the subject matter expert anymore and you better find out who is because, yeah. you know, as, as situations arise and crisis comes, you need to know who's in your foxhole and who's going to help you get it across the finish line and taking care of the installation. Awesome. All right. Is there anything else you need to tell us about Fort Campbell that you haven't told us already that we just really need to know or something on the post that people need to know about? I think what it comes down to is... It doesn't matter what compo you are. Yep. It doesn't matter what branch you are. At the end of the day, we're joint. This installation doesn't see it as, a, as an Army base. Our, our Department of Defense has done a really good job of changing that. So if you're a National Guard, if you're a reservist, you're from the Marine Corps, you're active duty, Navy, Coast Guard, I don't think we have anybody retired from the Space Force yet. <laughs> right. But at the end of the day, Fort Campbell exists for everyone. Awesome. And, and we are here, all our services are open to them, whether it's hunting and fishing, whether it's coming in for swimming, partaking in our golf courses, uh, our, our gate is open for, for everyone. We are here to serve. And I, I could tell you when I was going through my training, when I told everyone where I was going, they're like, you're going to the best. How'd you get right. so lucky? You are yeah. going to the best garrison command yeah. in the United States Army. Awesome. And I was like, oh, wow. They're like, you're going you're gonna to have the easiest job ever because your, your civilians truly know what needs to be done to meet the senior commander's intent and to set you and your, your garrison commander up for success. That's great. Sounds like a great, great place to work. Okay. It is our tradition here on the 1796 podcast when we have a seasoned guest to ask them what's their best piece of leadership advice for our listeners. we got a lot of airmen and soldiers out there listening, so take turns, gentlemen. What's your best piece of leadership advice? You go first, you want me to go first? I, I could start this one, sir. I, I think everybody thinks they have the right answer, and they, they may not have all of the facts and all of the details. I think ultimately when I look at this is brilliance in the basics and know your roles and be ready when to called upon for your specific area of operation. You know, it, it's very easy to turn around and think you know and say, oh, I would have done it this way. But I, I think ultimately what I would share with them is understanding that your senior leaders truly have the interest for the greater good when it comes down to making decisions and they understand risk and they understand the friction that could come when a leader makes a decision. And we understand that every every choice we make has a consequence, whether good or bad. Uh, we understand that. And we understand what we're asking of them, but ultimately we have to take for their greater good. Um, so I would tell you, like, your time's going to come when you're in those positions. And sometimes they're not as easy and as fun as you think of just, oh, I want to be promoted and I want to make it up there. But enjoy your time going through the ranks and truly master what's there so you don't forget when you get to the positions and you don't forget about, you know, how our decisions or how your decisions in the future will impact the formation at large. Great advice. Thank you. Colonel? No, there, there's a couple of things I have written down here, but I want to caveat on one of the things that 
uh, Sergeant Major Stackpole just said, enjoy your time as you as you go through the ranks, as you you progress through your career. I actually told a uh, a young officer this just the uh, the other day last weekend. I was in an ROTC ball, and he was he was the guest speaker. He had spoken about some of these jobs that he went into it throughout his lieutenant years that he really didn't know why am I doing this job you know why did I get pulled out of my platoon I just wanted to be a platoon leader whenever I joined the army right out of college right and I told him and I've learned this over the last 25 years typically speaking the jobs that I went into clawing my way to stay out of I learned the most mm. whenever I came out on yeah. the far end. So true. You know, yeah. I came out of the Special Forces Qualification Course. All I wanted to do was be a, you know, Special Forces Operational Detachment Alpha, an SFODA commander, and I got to do that. I had the greatest job I could ever ask for at 28 years old whenever I, you know, was able to, to be part of, of my ODA, conducting operations in, uh, in the Middle East. Greatest job I ever had. And then the battalion commander came and said, hey, I need you to be the support company commander. Man, there were claw marks all the way down the hall, out of the team room, down the hall. But you know what? I learned so much in that job. I had an awesome first sergeant, had an awesome team, and uh, and I came out. And that job, I think, really prepared me then to go on and become a you know field grade officer as a major, uh, and and then progress from there. So I I told this young man, he and he was he kind of gave me a quizzical look, but I was like, the job that you were going to go into kicking and screaming you're going to learn the most out of some of the other things i would say as a leader and this is another one i i I learned it as a lieutenant in the 82nd airborne division you know you are first out the door and last in the chow line and what that means to me is that means i am the first one to to step into harm's way that means you're going to put yourself in danger before you're going to put your soldiers in danger and you're always going to put your soldiers care and well-being in front of your own Um, i think that's a that's kind of the basis of you know especially those junior soldiers junior officers uh tactical level leadership take care of your soldiers and take care of their families and and be a servant leader you are not put in that leadership position because of who you are or what you are or to, to get any benefit out of that leadership position. Now, granted, you're usually put there because somebody believed in you, so I, I should probably, you know, say that. Nothing happens by chance, obviously, but you were really put there to take care of those soldiers. You were put there to be their servant leader and make sure that they have the opportunity to succeed in their career. You know, one of the best things you can ever see as a leader is to see those that you've had the honor to lead progress in their career, get promoted, get selected for command positions and, and things like that. So so take care of them and, and then take care of their families um, because a, a successful soldier at work is, is obviously supported by a family at home. The more you take care of their family, the more they know that they have trust and confidence in their leadership and that uh, when we ask them to go do hard things, they're going to they're gonna do it even better. Yeah. Colonel Jordan, Sergeant Major Stackpole. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the information about Fort Campbell, for the mentorship advice, the leadership advice, and and just sharing your experiences with us. Thank you for joining us on the 1796 podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening to the 1796 podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, sharing this episode with friends, and giving us a five-star review. The 1796 Podcast is produced by the Tennessee National Guard Joint Public Affairs Office. For more information, please visit www.tn.gov backslash military.